Good morning to all of you. You are a visitor. You are doubly welcomed. Uh, there's a special welcome for little Shanton. He has found his way into the church. He snuck his way into the church. I said to uh, Naz, she looks a little bit more gray. I don't know if it's because of him or if it's because of the other him. So. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, please listen along or just speak over to your neighbor next to you. Romans 5, 9. What a blessed moment we've had thus far to focus on the cross and the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This day in history is known as Good Friday, Good and Great Friday, Great Friday and also known as Black Friday, the original Black Friday. In this passage that we will look at this morning, there are two points that shows the significance of the cross and also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we come to your word this morning and with our hearts already moved by the words that were sung and the words that was read. It is and was the most magnificent magnificent moment in history when the Son of God was put on a cross. Some of us do not understand the weight of that moment. I pray that this weight would dawn upon them this morning. Pray for us who have a vague understanding of what it means that Jesus went to the cross, that you would open our hearts and may your spirit pour into us the understanding of the demonstration of the love of God on the cross of Christ. Help us to see it, Lord. Pray for those who are not saved. May you draw them through your word that they may become your children this morning. Bless your word for it is yours. Honor yourself. For your own glory's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while if we were, for if we, sorry, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In both these passages, there are two parallel thoughts and they are linked by the repeating words, much more than. If you have a pen highlighted, that words you need to highlight. They are tremendously significant because the words prior to that phrase, much more than, are more important. They are of greater importance than the words which follow that few words. So the words going before much more than carries the weight of the passage. 
And then following that is the lesser, even though it's not less important, in the way that Paul argues it. It's from greater to lesser. Now as we begin to understand what Paul is dealing with here, he wants us to comprehend the human problem in relation to God. Listen to verse 10. While we were enemies. That is the universal problem. That is the problem. If you are not a believer, you still find yourself in. This is the substance of our fallen human condition. Everyone is in this condition. An enemy of God. In other words, if you are not a Christian, you are what? An enemy of God. That's not me. I'm not saying that. That is God saying that of you. In other words, then you have no access to God. You do not have peace with God. And you are no, in no condition that endures the love, the grace, the mercy, and the attention of God. The problem is great. And it's insurmountable by you. But why enemies? What made us enemies? Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that one man? Verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam. Go back to verse 12. The one man through one man is Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Look at the last line of this verse. Because all sinned. So sin became a reality for all of us because Adam sinned. Yes, that is true. But God also says that all sinned in Adam. How is that possible? Two, three, two ways. Number one, Adam is our forensic head. Like the father is the head of the home. If there is a father, he's the head of the home. So Adam is head of his family, of which we all are part of. Adam is the head of creation, mankind. And when Adam fell, all of us fell. When Adam sinned, all of us sinned. As it goes with the first father and mother, so it goes with the children. We are all children of Adam and Eve. In other words, secondly, not only did we sin in Adam, but we are in Adam when he sins. Which means, when Adam sins, you are doing that exact offense because you would do that exact offense. I know it may be a bit confusing at the moment, but let me explain. God counts us all as sinners because of who Adam is to us. Let me explain it this way. If the father in the home does a major crime, is all affected by his crime, are all in the home affected by his crime, hypothetically, let's say he murders somebody. Is everybody affected by that? Yes. Did they do it? No, unless the wife told him to do it. That's a different case. <laughs> but they are as 
impacted by his offense as he is impacted by his offense. If he goes to jail, they impact it. Even if he keeps the murder to himself, they are still impacted because it changes that person. That is one aspect. The other aspect is, in Adam, God sees us as guilty because we would do the exact same thing were we put in Adam's position. Think about that. Perfect man and woman in a perfect condition where sin does not exist. There's no temptation to sin. And yet Adam sins. And yet the fall happens. And God says, well, if Adam, the most, the best of all mankind, the greatest of mankind falls, guess what? All of you would have done the same. Whether you're man or woman, you would have done exactly the same. So stop looking down on Adam. We are not only counted guilty because of our relationship to Adam, but also because of the best of mankind has failed. We would have also failed. That is the problem. Adam and Eve were sent away from the presence of God and every person that is born after Adam and Eve are born, what? Away from God. Nobody's born knowing God. See, God is too holy, too righteous, too just to allow sin to go unpunished. That is the state. As an enemy of God, you are in without the cross. So we are enemies of God. But why is this a problem? Look at verse 9. Since therefore now we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from his wrath. We shall be saved from his wrath. Wrath, judgment, Anger of God against the enemies of God. I want you to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here. There is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. There is no peace with God apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Something has to change the condition in which you stand before God in order for God to receive you as his child. God's holy wrath, his holy anger, his holy justice must be poured out. Now look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Something's different. You go from enemies and recipients of wrath to having peace. How? How can we go from enemies of God and enemies with God to having peace with God? The answer is verse 9. It expresses the problem but also the solution. I've got one point to make and I hope you get it. God has to deal with his wrath in order for us to be brought to himself. In other words, in order for us to be declared righteous, 
God needs to pour out his wrath. He needs to deal with the aspect of his wrath before you can become a child of God. Before you will be justified in his presence. So let me explain what I mean. When the Bible speaks about the wrath of God, there are three components in which it refers to it. Number one, the wrath of God can be seen in how it's demonstrated today in the moral decline and the increase of wickedness in this world. Turn over to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God here is constantly being poured out. Not the full measure of it, but elements of it is seen in the moral decline and the wickedness of mankind. If you read through the section, you will see in which ways God's wrath is revealed in society, or I should say in culture. They exchange what is normal for that which is abnormal. God gave man the capacity to love women. But the wrath of God is demonstrated in mankind when that normal relationship is exchanged. Is changed. That is God's wrath on mankind. When they worship the created thing, whether it's a tree or a little idol in their hand or a vehicle that they drive. They, create the, create, they worship the created thing rather than the creator, which is God. That is God's wrath demonstrated on this world. These are elements of God's wrath, not the full nature of his wrath. Secondly, the wrath of God can also be seen in a future day of judgment on the earth. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 5. Every minor prophet focuses on this day. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, wrath judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. You can't get away from that. The kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So present, future, which is the kingdom. Present, you are suffering. Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So there's a future day of, come, uh, of judgment coming where he will afflict those who are afflicting God's people and to grant relief to you who, who are afflicted as well as to us. When? Well, he tells us when. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Wow. That is a scary day when Jesus will come to vindicate his name and judge all those who do not believe in God. 
This is a future day of judgment. It is known as the day of the Lord or the wrath of God on earth. Thirdly, the wrath of God will also be seen in a future time where God will pour out his wrath upon all his enemies eternally, which includes the devil, his angels, and those who align themselves with them. I'm not going to turn to it, but in Revelation chapter 14 from 11 onwards, it speaks about that day when the devil and his angels and those who took the mark of the beast and all those who align with the devil and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire. In chapter 20 verse 11, it speaks about God's wrath on those who refuse to bow to the sun. If your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire forever. That's a future day of judgment. I want you to understand the reality of the wrath of God. It should make sense in a little moment's time. Those who do not receive the gospel, those who refuse the grace of God will be recipients eternally of the wrath of God. It will be upon them forever. Get this. The same judgment that God reserves for the devil and his enemies is the same judgment you will receive. If that doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. It's the same God counts your rebellion against Jesus Christ equal to the rebellion of, devil against, of the devil against God. Because both receive the same judgment. I, I don't want to be with the devil in the lake of fire forever. That is not the greatest judgment. The greatest judgment is God singling you out and pouring his wrath upon you forever. Wow. Your wickedness is no different to the wickedness of the devil in that you will receive the same judgment from God. There is much talk about the fire and brimstone in the book of Revelation. Most guys are now saying it's metaphorical, metaphorical language. It's a metaphor. Okay. Hypothetically, let's say it is a metaphor. Understand that a metaphor never overstates the reality. It always understates the reality. Because a meta metaphor is a picture of the real thing. So let's say, for the sake of argument, it is a metaphor. Or, uh, and he says that this is the kind of punishment you are going to get. And I will picture it for you. It's like being in fire and brimstone forever. Let's say that that is a picture then the reality is far worse. If, you, if the picture is you will be burning forever and ever, then the reality of the judgment is going to be worse than the image you could think of. Imagine burning forever and ever. Imagine being in flames eternally, going on day by day, experiencing God's wrath and distance from you for forever. That is scary. So if it is an analogy, the punishment that God will pour out on you will be worse than what you could ever imagine. John's point is this, that the torment in eternity will be great. So whether you take it as metaphorical or not, the point is still the same. It's going to be horrible. 
This is why the cross is important. I wanted to weigh you down with the reality of God's wrath because of what it means for the cross. The cross is important because God's wrath is at stake. What I mean by this is that you're either on the receiving side of it, the wrath of God, or you are on the escaping side of it, the wrath of God. You either don't get it, or you do. How? The answer is in Romans 5, verse 9. For those of you who know me, know I preach an hour every Sunday. I'm not preaching an hour today, so you'll get back for lunch. You'll get it when you get home. (laughs) Verse 9. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Pause there. Since we have been justified, counted as righteous by his blood, much more will we be saved from his wrath. There are two actions that is being explained here. Having been justified and We shall be saved. And both actions take place to us. It happens to us. Which means we are not doing the justification. And we are not doing the salvation. God does both. God justifies. God saves. And that's the point that Paul is making. God must do both in order for both to be true. What does Paul mean when he says that you have been justified by his blood? This means that we are not only brought to God and reconciled to God by the Son, but that the cross is the means through which God brings sinners to himself and the foundation, and the foundation upon which he declares us right with him. Both happen at the cross. Through the cross you are brought to God. At the cross... God declares us to be right with the Son. Reconciliation and justification takes place at the cross. How do we know that? Look at verse 9. It says, Since, or therefore, since, or since, therefore, all of them are okay. The, The word literally is therefore. But because there's an ongoing relationship to verse 8, the translators want to show that there is a connection going back. So, since, therefore. So, pointing back then to verse 8, what does verse 8 say? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Pause there. God commands, I think the NASB says, his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, I led the sermon with the wrath of God, being enemies with God, God being angry at us and our sin. I want you to feel that weight. But in verse 8, it says that God demonstrates his love. Hang on, how is it possible that God can be angry at us and also love us at the same time? How does God demonstrate both his anger 
and his love at the same time. Listen carefully. The means or the, the medium through which God's love is applied is the cross. Get that? The means or the medium through which God loves is the cross. Look at verse 8 again. God shows his love. God demonstrates his love. I'm going to take out the qualifying phrase, which is why we were still sinners. So I'm going to read it again. God shows his love in that Christ died for us. That's the point he's making. Do you get that? God's love is seen in what? The death of the son. God's love is demonstrated in the cross, is what Paul is saying. In order for the love of God to be applied to the sinner, so God loves, but in order for that love to be applied to the sinner, God has to go through the cross, and then through the cross applies his love to the sinner. Make sense? Without the cross, God's love cannot be fully applied to the sinner. That is true. Let me say it this way. Before God's love can be fully applied to the sinner, God's wrath must be poured out on the cross. Pause and think about that. Let it sink in. God's love is demonstrated in the death of the son, but there is something more than that that happens at the cross. God's love is seen in God pouring out his wrath, which I just explained to you, the, the weight and the nature of the wrath, which is eternal by nature, that can be seen today in God giving people over to wickedness, that will be future in the sense that he will demonstrate his wrath against those who hate him. That wrath was fully displayed on the cross on Jesus. Wow. That's where the blood is shed. So when Paul says that God's love is demonstrated in verse 8, in that Christ died for us, he's implying that the cross is the demonstration of the love of God. Now since, therefore, since that is true, having now been justified by his blood, what does Paul connect justification to? The cross. Therefore, since Christ died for us, pointing to the cross, having then been justified because of that work. Look at what he says in verse 9. Therefore have having been now been justified by his blood. What is he pointing to? The cross. By his blood is language that specifically and clearly speaks about the cross. Justified at the cross. Christ fully absorbed the cup of God's wrath. Fully absorbed the wrath. I don't know if that, that moves you or not. I want you to think about that. Every ounce of future wrath 
that God would ever pour out upon an individual that will become his child has been absorbed by Christ on the cross. God's love is displayed in the punishment of his son. That is love. Don't make the mistake of trying to defend the character of God by pointing to the love of God by negating the wrath of God. There are churches that will not speak about hell because they, they, they're scared of scaring little children. Children need to hear about the wrath of God just as much as you as an adult need to hear about God's anger that will be poured out in hell or I should say the lake of fire. So many people say, oh, oh but, but God is love, don't you know? God will never judge a sinner. God will never send an innocent person to hell. The problem is no one is what? Innocent. Even that sweet little baby, Shanton. Not innocent at all. And he knows that. Let me say it this way. You do not have the demonstration of God's love if you do not have the wrath of God on the cross. You do not know what God's love means if God doesn't show it in the death of his son. You cannot fully get God's love if you do not fully get that God was angry with his son on the cross in pouring out the fullness of his wrath because of our sin. God turned towards his son and bruised him for us. You don't know what love is if you do not get that moment in history. Without the cross, there is no understanding the love of God. Listen to this. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Yes, the author understood what the cross was. It was a demonstration of God's love and God's wrath in a single moment at the cross. The cross is the perfect demonstration of both the love of God and the wrath of God at a single point in history. But when we deny the wrath of God by only exalting the love of God, we destroy the beauty of the horror and the majesty of the cross of Jesus Christ. Holy love and holy wrath is revealed on the cross. If there is no wrath to be saved from, there is no need for God to give his son to be bruised. If there is no wrath, there is no need for the sun to come to earth. If there is no wrath, then the entire fabric that weaves together our justification, that is God declaring us to be right with himself, to be, to be righteous, God's declaration of what we become in Christ, 
and our reconciliation to God, it falls apart. There is no reconciliation and justification apart from the love of God and the wrath of God being, shared, uh, um, being poured out on the cross of Christ. To fully get the love of God, you must come to face with a horror of the wrath of God on the cross. You get that point? I, I repeated it for a specific reason because this is what the cross is about. This is why it is so important. God loved in giving his son. Sound familiar? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Pause there. I'll get back to that. The giving of the son is not only the giving of the son to come to earth. The giving of the son is so that he would come to die. We don't need to protect God by highlighting his love. Because God doesn't do that. He demonstrates his love by pouring out his wrath. God has no fear in showing his anger, in showing his wrath. Because he knows that the the fullness of his love is perfectly demonstrated when Jesus dies for us. What the cross shows is, number one, the weight of the wrath Secondly, the height of our offense. And thirdly, the depth of God's love. Eternal wrath was directed to the Son. Wrath that would be, that is reserved for eternity to be poured out on those that reject the Son, has been turned towards the Son so that those who believe in the Son would not face the wrath of God in what? Eternity. The weight of the wrath of God is so much so that no one can receive it and live. The height of our offense is against a holy God that must judge sin and sinners. The nature of God's love is made manifest in the death of the Son. This is what the cross is about. Paul says, look at verse 9. Since therefore, We have been justified by his blood, having been declared right by the death of the son on the cross. Here's the argument that Paul is making. If God did all the difficult work of justifying us by the cross, that is by his blood, if our justification is secure and, and predicated upon, upon the fact that God provides a son to die for us. If our justification can never be removed because of what Jesus Christ has done. Then, then, how much more will we be saved from his wrath? The difficult work has already been done. The easy work is this. Will he not be able to save you from his future wrath? The answer is yes. That's the point. The difficult work has already been done on the cross. So therefore, the future work of keeping you saved for eternity away from his wrath is secure. The easy work of saving us from his wrath is guaranteed. This means that every drop of wrath, every drop of wrath that God would have poured out on you was poured out on whom? 
Jesus Christ. Every ounce of anger that he would have had towards you in eternity was turned away from you towards the Son. And he received it forever. Which means then what? There is no more condemnation and judgment for those who are where? In Christ. God's people said, Amen. There remains nothing for you to bear. Which means there's no more wrath for those who are children of God. Listen to the Apostle John's version of what Paul is saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. Let me retranslate it. For God loved the world in this way, is what the Greek means there. In this way. That he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, 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 but have everlasting life through him. That is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5 verse 9. There is no more punishment for those who come to Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, Christ on the cross absorbs all, every bit of wrath that you would have received. So that you don't have to. But take note of the last part of this clause. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath. That is future. Much more shall we be saved from his future wrath. Hang on. How can you have future wrath if all the wrath is poured out on the sun? How's both possible? It's very simple. The wrath that would have been poured out on the children of God is poured out on the Son of God. The wrath that everyone who becomes a child of God is fully born by the Son of God for the children of God. But there remains a future wrath for those who would refuse Christ as Lord and Savior. That future wrath still exists. So if you don't become a child of God, what happens to you? You still are under the wrath of God. There are some in our church who are not protected from the future wrath of God. And God says, I have made provision for you at the cross. You can be saved by God, to God, from God. If you bow your knee because you understand that God in Christ died on the cross. Receiving every bit of punishment you should have received forever. The judgment that will be poured out in eternity forever was received by Christ. This is why. The cross is important. My one point was this. God had to deal with his wrath in order to reconcile us to himself. God did. God dealt with his wrath in pouring it out on the sun so that 
whoever believes in him should not perish. That is the cross of Christ. Now, why is the resurrection important? Come back on Sunday and we will look at the importance of the resurrection. Father, we are thankful to you for the beauty of the cross. That Christ himself would die for such as us. We don't deserve it. There are those here who are starting to understand the weight of your wrath. Pray that they would come to the cross and ask you for forgiveness. Ask you to change their life. Lord, this is the only way that they will be shielded from your wrath. I pray for this day that on this Good Friday it will indeed be good to those who have heard the sermon that the blackness of this Friday may become a reality to them. Help them to understand the weight of Calvary that they may rejoice in the good work of Calvary. Thank you for your love demonstrated at the cross. For your glory we pray. Amen.